Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... Welcome back to the Compassionate Capitalist Show. Of course, I'm Karen Rands, and I'm very excited about the show we have planned for today. Uh, I have Mr. Vernon Lee, of the co-founder of the Marathon Fund, with me here today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, but let me tell you first about why I'm excited about this, because we haven't talked about venture capital and the state of venture capital in, in a number of episodes. It's been a while since I've had a, a VC person on here. Uh, we've been doing a lot with angels. But as you know, traditionally, uh, you know, you start with seed capital that's, you know, friends and family and then angels and then the VCs fall into that next gap. And that's usually the ones that bridge them through to getting to the, the milestones they need or the size of the company they need to start to have options when it comes to, you know, what they do next, you know, another VC or a private equity fund or other types of sources of capital. And so, you know, within that traditional um, pathway, you know, VCs are very, very critical to that. You know, as we've talked in the past with crowdfunding under the Jobs Act, a lot of that kind of changed and there's, it's very fluid as to where play they go. And then in this particular case, one of the things that, as you know, if you listen to a number of my shows, I have had this as a topic, is funding those businesses that are underrepresented, women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, and even as you know, new sort of focus groups of uh, veteran-owned businesses as well as LGBTQ. And so there's um, a, a lot that we've talked about in the past or I've shared with my guests that there's been there's a big, giant gap. And, uh, and we don't always necessarily know exactly why that is. We have some ideas, there's some things. So today, Vernon and I are going to talk about his fund, the focus of his fund, and, uh, and that particular, which is in those underserved communities, and why that is important. What's the, what, what, why are we where we are now? And where are we going with that? So stay tuned. Let me tell you a little about uh, Mr. Vernon Lee. All right. So as I mentioned, he is the partner and co-founder of the Marathon Fund. Marathon Fund. It's an early stage equity, primarily investing in high growth, innovative businesses. The fund aims to deploy capital with exceptional entrepreneurs that have been historically underrepresented. The Black, Latinx, women, disabled, veterans, LGBTQ in their institutional private capital markets. He's also a member of the Global Impact Fund 2 and the Investment Committee. And, and roots run deep in that. Mr. Lee previously chaired the Venture Capital Access Program, VCAP, a partnership between the Marathon Foundation, the Harvard Business School Alumni Angels of New York, and the National Association of Investment Companies. You might know it as NAIC. He's also a judge for the I.Invest National Youth Business Competition and Startup One-Way Pitch Competition, which is where we first met, was through that organization. Uh, previously, he has, uh, before getting involved in the venture community, he served his country and the Air Force as an acquisition officer in the Satellite Communication Program Office and Aeronautical Center, System Center, as well as was a director in Price Waterhouse Coopers is the business advisory practice with responsibility for providing operational business improvement strategies, among other types of focus uh, within the technology, infocom, entertainment, and media industry. He served also served as PwC's relationship manager for minority venture capital private equity initiatives to include increasing access to capital. So all of that is, it would sound like it's been a straight line, but I would bet, welcome, first of all, welcome, Vernon, to the show. Thanks. I really decided to have you here. Thanks, Karen. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So not nobody really ever ends up where they are at our age um, in a straight line. 
I mean, did you, did you, when you graduated out of, out of Howard University in management, your BBA in management, or got your master's in international affairs, did you think you would be leading a venture capital firm at one, at some point in your life? Absolutely not. I, uh, so my dream when I was growing up in Hampton, Virginia was to fly jets. So Langley Air Force Base is in Hampton Air Combat Command. And so I grew up, you know, I come from a military family. Grandfather was in the Air Force. Mother was a captain of the Army, uncles. So uh, heavy influence from uh, a military standpoint. But no, my, my dream was to fly jets. And then my senior year in high school, I had to get glasses. And so to be able to even compete for a pilot slot, uh, at least during those times, you had to have perfect vision. So even as I was thinking about potentially Air Force Academy or where I would uh, pursue my Air Force ROTC endeavors to be able to be eligible to become an officer in the Air Force. Um, but no, my, my plan was to <laughs> definitely fly jets. And then later I wanted to, I very much wanted to, what I thought, spend my career in the Air Force uh, from that standpoint. And my other dream was to be the mayor of Hampton, of which neither <laughs> thing has happened. So uh, I thought the current mayor and I are actually pretty good friends, but yeah. those are my dreams. So coming out of Howard, uh, that was not the case. But Karen, I will tell you that part of the seed for not necessarily investing per se, but from an entrepreneurial standpoint, uh, really did start at Howard. Uh, one of my classmates, uh, my freshman year at Howard, one of my classmates threw some of the best parties in DC, not just at Howard, but in DC. And he went on to find a, a record label and fashion and uh, uh, be a significant part of the, the culture. But Sean Puffy Cone, um. we called him Puffy. But he was a classmate of mine and he was someone just me seeing what he was doing on an entrepreneurial basis inspired me. So when I Went home for the summers in Hampton to my cousins. We actually started promoting parties and doing small concerts. We did had something with Queen Latifah. And so so the entrepreneurial and, uh, spirit really germinated and started from that experience. But I knew I was destined, uh, being on an Air Force RTC scholarship, that I was going to uh, serve my country for at least four years. But that entrepreneurial spirit and, and bug started when I was at Howard. Yeah, well, and then I guess what you were doing at Price Waterhouse, well, of course, it wasn't the call Price Waterhouse Keepers back then, probably, but, you know, when they were, you know, being in that advisory road in those industries that are really innovative, you probably had exposure to a lot of, of you know, maybe not so much on the really early stage, but what what it meant to be successful in those industries. Yeah, As, and, and no, and that's exactly right. So, PwC, it was PwC, the merger had just happened. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Become Price Waterhouse Coopers, but uh, to the credit of the firm's leadership, during that time period, we absolutely were working with you know, Global 1000 companies, Fortune 500, you know, a lot of name brand, well-known uh, companies. And I was, I had, <clears throat> I had the benefit of working with some really smart people and understanding various industries, whether it was in tech, entertainment, media, financial services, but we had a program called CWEP, C-W-E-P, Companies with Extraordinary Potential. They were all venture-backed companies. Really? So I was, as part of our management, uh, from partner to senior manager and manager, I was very involved with working with some of CWEP as a consultant, working with those VC-backed firms. So that was my real first exposure to working with startup companies that had received venture capital and understanding the nuances and sort of the cyclical nature of being able to hit certain milestones so that next tranche of funding would take place. And to PwC's credit, the whole idea was obviously strategic that we would charge little to no fees. So as those firms get larger rounds of funding, whether you're at advisory tax or audit, that you grow with the firm, get a you know series A, series B round, IPO, and you know, the firm would grow ha happily forever. Uh, ever after with, with some of those startups. So that was the strategy. So yes, that was my first exposure to the VC community when I was at PwC. Well, that's, and it's similar in a way to like my, I, within IBM, I had been a part of all of these different um, launches of businesses and new businesses within IBM and, and 
new focus areas of technology. And so I always felt like I was that entrepreneur within the company, the company. And as they were coming out of 1999, they realized that the way they had reorganized anybody that didn't own a mainframe was considered small business. So you could have 400 <laughs> AS 400s, but you were still a small business, right? And so- It's scary, it's scary that I know exactly what you're talking about with those AS 400s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, they realized that they were missing out on the big guys like Amazon and eBay and all these ones that were kind of coming in to, you know, gain momentum or just going public at that time. And so they created this fighter team, if you will, of folks that could help the companies, the startups, get their business massaged and validated and their marketplace validated. So we would, I was responsible for identifying those and then putting IBM resources of brain power on it. But then also, you know, they had like an in-kind where they would give them equipment because in the hopes that they would one, standardize an IBM, and as a result of that, be able to out and get the venture capital money so they could come back and then buy the equipment from IBM to grow. So similar in that they were, you know, we were not charging them for their first round of stuff that they were developing on and things like that so that they could, um, you know, ultimately be venture-backed. Very similar how these big companies think sometimes. So, so we'll fast forward from that. And then how did Marathon Fund come about? Yeah, so one of my current partners, uh, I have two partners, Christina Francis and Dwayne McKnight. Dwayne was previously a partner with Syncom Ventures and Syncom was one of the first, one of two black venture capital firms that was started by Herb Wilkinson back in the late seventies. Her brilliant, brilliant oh. person. But Syncom uh, invested in you know some household names in terms of companies that are household names now with BET and Radio One and TV One and uh, Iridium, the, the precursor to Exxon uh, Radio was founded mm, by oh, yeah. an Ethiopian uh, brother. But so they have been doing, it, doing that for a long time. And so while I was at PwC, I was part of a group and my partner, Dwayne McKnight, had a vision for creating this deal ecosystem for underrepresented entrepreneurs which was the Marathon Club. And so I had the fortune, uh, while I was at PwC, we were a sponsor and I got very involved uh, with the space, if you will, for underrepresented entrepreneurs and access to capital was a big part of that. And so we were working through creating a dealmaker summit and other entities, really, Karen, you know, going back to 2004, 2005 and a number of initiatives uh, surrounding that. So through that exposure, after I left PwC, I started an advisory firm uh, Brightwood Management Partners to continue working with startups, mid-market companies across a, a number of sectors, if you will. Uh, but Dwayne and I still very much stay in contact with the Marathon Foundation and the initiatives around that. And as we looked at the marketplace, there was a significant lack of pre-seed and seed stage capital that was directed to underrepresented entrepreneurs, which from our perspective, we define as black. Latinx, women, disabled, LGBTQ, and, and uh, veterans. And so that was really, from our standpoint, wanted to get into the market, and not just from a social standpoint, but from a returns perspective, with a, with a goal of really trying to help reduce the wealth gap. And so if, you're, if you if access to capital for entrepreneurs that are traditionally have not had that access to capital and through a network and coaching and mentoring, the numbers, you know, tell you know, tell a story over and over again when entrepreneurs from that segment uh, typically outperform mainstream. So that is why we wanted to focus in. And this was pre-George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Maud Aubrey and, and many of the others that uh, were unjustly, um, you know, situations that they were put in in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. So. Let's talk a bit. Let's talk a little bit more about that because um, it's interesting. We were talking before we got started with this recording. We were kind of talking through some of that, and you just said something about they outperform. So was so by and large when you you know break it down based on those kind of diverse categories, do the 
businesses from those, you know, the one Blatton, uh, I'm sorry, Blatton, <laughs> Black, Latinx, women, disabled veterans, LBGQ, do they outperform male, white-owned businesses in general from startups? Absolutely. And, and so... And our focus is to invest in high growth companies, right? So there's small businesses that maybe are more service oriented and, uh, you know, have a little bit different focus that aren't necessarily venture capital back type deals, like the model for high growth doesn't fit, but, you know, amazing companies employing some amazing people. And so to answer your question, so that performance, you know, tells a story, but for those that are, actually have access to capital and have an opportunity compared sure. to their male counterparts, it absolutely, you know, the performance is there and there's data and there's so many more reports that out there that shows that those entrepreneurs actually outperform and create more alpha for their investors. And so when you look at comparison of, uh, you know, what traditionally backed companies and whether Silicon Valley or uh, other regions across the country, the profile of those entrepreneurs as many know, is very different. And so to get a friends and family round, just to even get out of the gate to try and get to an MVP, a minimal viable product, they're already ahead in many cases because they've got friends or family or classmates that can invest in their idea early on. Whereas if you're black or, or Latinx from those communities, you're, you're gonna struggle because most of your friends and family don't have the capital right. to really back, back you in a way that gives you that type of runway to actually execute on your initial idea and be able to get through that initial phase, even to get to an MVP. So yeah. right out of the gate, when you compare entrepreneurs in terms of their journey, it's um, uh, the lack of access to capital and, and the networking and the coaching and mentoring hasn't traditionally exist. So for those that are able to perform uh, with those barriers, it says quite a bit about those founders and those entrepreneurs. I see. Yeah. So we could so the, 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 the struggle the struggle makes them fine tune their skills, their knowledge, their um, their access, you know, their 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 understanding their marketplace in a way that maybe might be taken for granted within other ones because they get they can they can use other people's money to to validate the market, if you will. Is that, does that make sense what I'm saying there? It, that, it, that's exactly right. And so one of the things that we know, mm-hmm. you know, those of us, Karen, you know, that are in this space around validating your consumer, being able to uh, iterate and get feedback from your consumer engagement and understand a product market fit, you've got to have the runway and the altitude to be able to do that. And typically, and again, there's some amazing companies as we know that, um, that have pushed the, the lines of innovation and have reinvented markets in significant ways but you know for the oftentimes they've had that airspeed and altitude from a capital standpoint and through their network to be able to iterate and to be quite honest have opportunity to fail and right. not have it be a um a mark against them when they're going back into the marketplace or if they have to pivot yeah that's exactly right um so one of the things that's I want to uh, we talked a little bit about it before, but I want to I think this is really important for people to understand. Let's first talk in general about VCs and the nature of your VC because you've got I meet people that are listening the the business the business owners the entrepreneurs the investors out there. You know I remember when I first <laughs> when I first left IBM. And I discovered the world of angel investing. I'd never heard of angel investing. All money that wasn't bank money was VC money. That was like all I knew, right? That was the term. And early on, we'd get people go, I just want to find a VC. And I'd be like, well, no, VCs only do this kind and, you know, that kind of stuff, right? That's where I kind of laid out this, this sort of assembly line of capital that is traditionally in the place. So, you know, you talk about seed stage, Right. And you're in the midst. You've got you have some money under management. You're continuing to raise capital, you know, and there we'll talk a little bit about that. But compared to like other VCs, because, you know, there's VCs that have been around forever and a day and they're these huge mega funds and they make these giant checks. And it was always like, oh, you have to have a million dollars in revenue or a pipeline of a million dollars because the nature of valuation, which is 
that's a whole nother conversation, how valuation has been blown apart by unicorns these days and these large checks. But it's like that, you know, so talk about outside of the nature of of your focus of, of who the founder is, but the stage and the industry and that how that compares to your peers. And is there new language coming out that we've used a term like boutique VC or, you know, seed stage what does that mean talk about sort of the landscape of vcs in general venture capital firms in general and how you're defining or if there's still a lot of confusion out there when you go out there and you say this is the kind of of fund that we have or our focus yeah this is a very i mean and for your listeners and viewers this is a really important concept to understand because it is confusing because if you're in Silicon Valley, your term, your pre-seed and seed amounts of capital that you're deploying is probably a little bit different from the rest of the country. And in many cases, or, or maybe New York, maybe Austin or, or, or Boston. So let me just start with the marathon fund. Let me start there in terms of how we view pre-seed, seed, and pre-series A. And so for us, our strategy stage-wise is pre-seed, seed, and pre-series A. Our expectation is that you can absolutely be pre-revenue, but you have to at a minimum have at a minimum have a minimal viable product, right? So we're not funding ideas. Uh, that's just not an area of focus that that we have for the type of deals that we and founders that we're backing. We also want to see some level of product market fit and a demonstration of that. And that could come in different forms in terms of market acceptance, some customers, uh, validation. So those are some of the things in terms of what we look for. And for us, you know, our, our focus is really uh, the amount of capital that we'll deploy. It could be anywhere from 50,000 to half a million, but the size of the round, whether it's pre-seed or seed, could be anywhere from a million to two to two and a half million dollar round. But we're, we've taken the stance that we will lead most of the deals that we're involved in Interestingly enough, that does not necessarily mean writing the biggest check either, but it means the due diligence that goes into really getting to know the founder. And we have sort of an assessment criteria that we use for sort of founder evaluation. But when you're looking at pre-seed opportunities and for those founders that are out there, and I would say, I think for most of my colleagues and peers that are investors, evaluating a pre-seed opportunity is different from a seed stage which is different from pre-Series A and very different for Series A. So for your viewers and right. uh, those that are that are listening and, and watching, the amount of capital and the metrics that you have as an investor to evaluate on a pre-seed stage is very much going to be founder-driven, yeah. right? And does that founder have some expertise or some uh, from that particular industry and which or the solution that they're providing and working to deploy and implement? Have they operated in an environment with their decision-making that we can evaluate? So it's very founder-driven. As you start to move up that scale to see, you've got a few more metrics to evaluate uh, from a financial standpoint in pre-series A, it becomes a little bit different. So I, I think for those you know founders and, and business owners that are out there, it's very, it could be different from a stage standpoint, which is why it's important, I think, for them to do their homework before engaging with any VC. Right. Because, you know, when you hear about Andreessen Horowitz, which is obviously a VC that has significant funds, Andreessen Horowitz is going to be very different for how they're evaluating their Series A deals or Motley Fool Ventures and others that are doing Series A because they're looking for, at that point, more metrics on the finance side uh, to see what that high growth opportunity may look like. So so that's how we define pre-seed in our evaluation of those opportunities. I think there's a lot of, I mean, you hear about micro VCs and boutique VCs. At the end of the day, I think anyone who's engaging in a space who's looking for that type of capital, this type of risk capital, is to go to the website, look and really understand sort of that description of from an investment standpoint. Because again, I've got colleagues and peers that are focused on this space, and they're VC and they will say growth stage or uh, equity stage or seed stage, and it may vary a little bit. So make sure you go to some of the websites 
and trying to engage in opportunities like this to hear from. And things are so different now because Karen, you're you're providing an amazing platform that didn't exist, you know, a couple of years ago for entrepreneurs to not really understand. So now there's so much information out there they can hear. Pretty much most VCs are either blogging, tweeting, <laughs> or they're on a panel where they're describing right. their investment philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, well, and it's also when you say high growth, okay. So from an industry standpoint, if you're dealing with where you don't have a lot of that track record to show, you know, and you don't want the, like everybody, sometimes you do these hockey sticks and it makes you roll your eyes when their financials just look like that. Oh yeah, we're high growth. If we get a half a percent of the market, we're going to be this huge company. Right. And so, do you, are you looking at sectors where you've already identified opportunities and there's a lot of potential customers? So, so when, you know, it's, it's that founders got the right knowledge, they got the right expertise, they might have whatever their past experience has been, and the combination of what's the potential of that kind of innovation, is that where you're trying to sort of, you know, anticipating where the puck is going, so to speak? Yeah, so for the Marathon Fund, we lean into a couple of sectors, ed tech, fintech, digital health, digital media, gov tech, and real estate tech. So we're going to always be opportunistic because we're founder focused, right? So if we meet like really innovative founders in their particular industry, I mean, we will look outside of those industries, but those are the ones where we've had some level of success, either from angel investing or previous fund like Dwayne or working with in some heavy capacity. Those are the industries that uh, my partners and I really lean into, but we are opportunistic. Um, Having said that, we we are in in terms of kind of forecasting the total addressable market is a real important criteria. So from a high growth standpoint, is a total addressable market 100 million, depending on the problem that the, the founder is trying to solve, or is it, you know, seven billion and that certainly goes into our criteria and understanding that high growth opportunity because and what you know many i think for founders and small business owners to think about is as a fund we have shareholders and investors and limited partners our lps that we have to have a return to and typically you know if, if you know our target fund size is about you know 50 million but when you look at returns, I mean, on a sort of IRR perspective or a multiple perspective, I mean, 3x and 30-ish, you know, percent return. So if you think about what we have to do in terms of the number of companies we invest in and the fact that, you know, if you look at some of the numbers that are out there, even some of the best funds, you know, two-thirds are going to fail. I mean, that's a high failure rate. When you look really? At- I had not heard that number. Yeah, roughly about two thirds of a per. I mean, usually about a oh, third two thirds of the companies, the companies in there. Right, 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 right. Right yeah. within a portfolio, portfolio are probably going to fail. Yeah. So, which means about a third, and maybe even less of that third, is really going to re- return the fund. Which means those companies that survive and make it and get a second round of uh, of capital out of the fund and in future rounds have to be significantly high growth. Which means They've got to be able to grow at a rate that when we exit, they can continue, you know, for that next round of capital, we can get our return, whether that's two and a half, three, three and a half X uh, or more. (laughs) And that's just the way the numbers work. So they've got to be high growth, ultimately from a revenue generating standpoint to be able to hit that type of number. So that's why high growth, we're very specific about describing as high growth versus a well-performing small business. Yeah. So if you're coming in, let's see, because you're uh, the target market um, of the founders, okay, that they're, you know, don't have access to necessarily the the friends and family kind of stuff, or maybe even an angel group. We'll talk about that in a a minute. Um, So when, when you're coming in with your capital, and it, you know, half a million dollars or whatever, if you're leading the round, let's say it's two million and it is a high growth, they, they, you know that they're going to need that next round. Have you 
do you have a, that ecosystem that you help them navigate and try to get to the next round kind of a thing and, and to sort of chart your own success on that? Uh, again, wonderful, wonderful question because we are very trans. We try to be as transparent as we can with the founders that we meet. And oftentimes we'll say no because no meaning, and it's not no that you won't be successful. It may be no because we can't see a path of our firm helping you get to a Series A. If we don't see that path based on our Series A partners and co-investors and uh, within a pipeline, then again, for Marathon Fund, other funds are out there and, and you know whether that's the criteria for them, it's different. But absolutely, if we can't see a path to a Series A, we're gonna pass because I, you're gonna run out of, again, you know, I use the term airspeed and altitude being an Air Force guy, but you're gonna run out of capital at some point and if, you know, whether it's, and I mentioned Motley Fool Ventures, they're a great firm, uh, and some of the teams over there. And, you know, we've got good partnerships with Andreessen Horowitz and the home brews of the world and, and some of the others, uh, Revolution and, and others. But if we can't see that path to a Series A, then you're going to ultimately run out of capital and you're not going to be able to be successful. Yeah. So we'd rather I'm... not, yeah, we can't make that commitment up front with our capital and seeing that path, especially with them knowing the type of deals and opportunities they want to, they want to back at a series A round. Yeah. And that I'm so glad to hear that you are thoughtful in that process and um, transparent to the folks that are coming to you for funds, because it's a big part of what I talk about, even in my book. And I was, you know, an inside secrets to angel investing when I was, um, and I was also advising a new angel group out of uh, Tampa. And they said, what's the number one thing you think we need to make sure that we do? And I said, know where your next round of funding is going to come. Don't invest in a company if you don't know. And in this particular group, there's a lot of retirees that had moved down out of corporate world and stuff like that. I said, you need to know, one, who it's going to go and who is the potential acquirer. So you, everyone down there needs to work their Rolodex to find somebody that's back still in Johnson and Johnson, let's say, or someplace like that and say, is this something that you see in your radar or where you think that you're going to, you know what I mean? And know who your next round of funding is going to be because the number one reason why companies don't succeed or get all the way is because of not getting the funding. Right. And, and so whether you're an individual investor or in a group, you need to be thinking about that and the company's ability to raise all the money that they're going to need and their financials need to reflect all that. So I'm really happy to hear that, that and, you do that. I want, to, I want to drill that point home even more around angel investing because so many entrepreneurs that we meet are not ready for venture capital, but they're, they're at the right stage for angel investing. Like I, I really want to make sure, I mean, you've touched on it and I think through your book and a lot of things you've done with your platform, right? talked about angel investing, but that, that network, again, not just the check writing, but that validation through from a customer standpoint, because that's, because if angel investors, I mean, when you look at the ecosystem are extremely important for us, because if you were able to, again, through tremendous challenges and obstacles, get a friend and family around, even if it's 5,000 or 10,000, like, it, you know, maybe it's not 100,000, but it's at least set you up to try and get to an MVP and, and be able to get some prototype to get to an angel investor, we, I mean, those are signs for us in that decision-making standpoint of, look, you, maybe you got one angel investor at this point, but that says something about your ability mm -hmm. to convince and engage someone. So, but the angel investment investor community are filling a huge gap that didn't exist, I think, some years ago, sort of, sort of pre-VC, whether you're pre-seed or seed. So, uh, again, I think for some of your listeners and uh, and viewers and some of the other founders and business owners out there like, engaging in some angel groups and trying to approach them before even getting to a VC is extremely important. Yeah. I think will improve their opportunity for success. Yeah, because you're unique in the in where you're playing, and it's in part I think most because of the of your target of the types of founders that you want to work with that you're having to. You know, kind because you know, depending on the amount of access to capital that's out there and how much capital, you know, VCs will move up and down the spectrum of stage sometimes. Same thing with private equity funds and things like that. The angels are always really in that that very early stage. Most of them also do want an MVP. They do want similar kinds of things as what you're talking about. And so 
figuring out how to get that from your uh, the euphemism of friends and family. Um, you know, I, I have a, I've had a coaching program over the years where I teach people how to raise their friends and family. And it's, you know, it's not, it's, you know, friends and family aren't necessarily a lot of time entrepreneurs are going to be like, well, I don't have any friends and family that, you know, have money. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Cause you wouldn't be talking to me if you did, but it's like, you know, it's not necessarily the guy you're, you know, cracking back beers with and watching the game with that you're going to be getting the money from, but that person might know someone right. that they'll make that intro to if you give them the words to say, you know, to that other person. And so you have to, your friends and family have to know what you're doing so they can say, you know, I, I, I use this example when I'm coaching companies, it's like, you know, Aunt May has no money to give you because she's on a fixed income and all that kind of stuff, but she would do anything in order to help you be successful because you're her favorite nephew or something. Right. And so what you got to do is be able to put it into words that she can explain and talk to her because when you say tell her about this business this vision you have and she says oh do you remember miss carol and you're like oh yeah when i yeah when from the, whatever she goes well her husband just sold a business and they're getting ready to go on a trip around the world and you're like oh well you think you can introduce me to to Mr. Bob or whatever, you know what I mean? And let's have some tea or something and I can come over and you're not going to jump on him because he may not ever been an angel investor. He may never have done anything like that. So he's not going to understand to do that, but you can go and ask advice, see if there'll be an advisor because he's a successful business owner who's exited. And then over time, you develop the trust that they could give you the money to be the MVP or they might just do it because Miss Carol loved you. You know, I mean, so that's you know, a great that, example. No, that's a great example. That's exactly the, the way to yeah. go about doing it. So let's get into talking about the reason why there's a need for and there are these 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 diverse founders that are underrepresented and underfunded. So underrepresented and underfunded. Right. So when I was first started the NBA up or took over the network of business angels and investors, and I'm running this, I'm just screening the companies. And I had been doing a lot of work with the Atlanta Urban League and Minority Business Development Center. So, you know, I kind of I knew that there was a need. Um, and I don't know that I myself was very proactive in trying to attract those types of founders, even though I was involved in it. You know, you just sort of assume that they're going to come knock on your door. And I also made the assumption, even though 97% of the people in my organization, the members of my organization were white males, you know, in that age thing of 45 to 55 or 50 to 60 kind of a thing. And so I just always thought there was no black and white money. It's all green. They just want to know if they can make money on this. And I, and I, the, the term racial bias wasn't really a term that was in my vocabulary back in 2005 and such. So, you know, um, and so, you know, I would always love to give anybody, they, if they, to me, they pass the metrics of my business plan review and my screening and they had an addressable market, all the things that you're sort of talking about, they got an opportunity to, to pitch to the, to the group, you know, and I, and I didn't, you know, to me, it was green. It was like, who can make money? Can you make money if you put money into this company? That was really my criteria, right? And what's the risk value of what they figured out or not figured out? And if they already raised an angel round, then that was a big plus forward because they knew how to raise capital and they knew how to pitch, right? So that was kind of the where I had been. And I, you know, just over the years, it seems like that number of women-owned businesses getting funding from angel investors, um, you know, because the the uh, national the national venture capital association that's out of New Hampshire does the research thing. They would sort of look at that. Oh, and it's, well, PitchBook is yeah, but then there there was New Hampshire University used to always do a survey and would take the 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 uh, the stats and then as an angel group we would get it and it was always consistently and I think and it's what's amazing from 2005 to where we are today, what, 16 years, it hadn't changed much, right? It was 
maybe maybe five percent of of the entrepreneurs that got capital on the seed stage were women-owned businesses minority-owned businesses were even less now i think last i did a, a podcast the other day with a woman that focuses on this area and she said it's at seven percent so and three percent so it's like it's it's notched up one or two percent over 16 years you know and so you know the question i have on this is i i and i've i mean i also let me preface it also by saying i've noticed that there's been in that time frame a lot more emphasis on uh like black girls code and introducing, making sure that there's uh, high school programs for uh, women, minorities to get the STEAM that they need, the science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and encouraging them to be a part of that, which, you know, most angel-backed companies and most stuff are technology companies. So there's an element that there's just a growth of, of folks that have gone into those companies that had exited, they've been experienced in management now they're out starting their own and so there's a 50 a decade thing that maybe some of that there is a a rise of venture funds such as yourself that you know are, are angel groups that are focused on that is it is the 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 underfunded versus underrepresented so one on different sides of the equation so on the underrepresented is there really only three to seven percent of the entrepreneurs out there that are minority or women owned when it comes to fundable kinds of companies? Because there's, you know, the general entrepreneur thing is like 51% of the women are, but there are a lot of services. They're not necessarily high growth potential. So is there an underrepresentation of women and minorities? And in the classes you're talking about, first and foremost, and then we'll talk about the other side of the table, the funding side. So what do you, what do you see out there? Do you, do you see, because you've been with the, with the uh, Marathon Club and with Brightwood, you know, in an ecosystem developing this, is there, is there just not enough or is there, what, what's the status of that? What's, where are we with that? I mean, certainly there's an underrepresented aspect of founders that have traditionally fit the criteria for venture capitalists. And a lot of that has to do with uh, pattern recognition in many cases, because most of the capital that flows to founders and startups have been from a ecosystem, again, predominantly white male, that are investing in people they know or sort of one person removed and those individuals have either been serial entrepreneurs that may have been backed through another previous entity, or maybe they were part of a team, you know, at PayPal or Facebook or Google that spun out and started a company that ended up getting venture capital that was successful. And then those individuals that were part of that team, whether they're mm -hmm. engineers or technical or otherwise, went on to form another company. So you've got this sort of tree uh, effect, if you will, with these branches of opportunities. And so within that network, it's been pattern recognition in terms of uh, investors within that space. So from an underrepresented standpoint, if you're not um, interacting with a Black founder, or if you're not being deliberate and intentional about finding and engaging in the communities in which this amazing talent exists, but yes, you're gonna keep doing what you've always been doing. And so from an underrepresented standpoint, that's exactly what part of the current problem exi that, that exists. But when you look on a consumer facing side of things and you look at the buying power of black households and Latinx households, when you look at the decision-making, uh, purchasing decisions of disabled community or LGBTQ, when you start to look at the consumer behavior that's associated with these underrepresented communities, wow, it, it almost is like, wait a minute, you need to invest in the companies that are now gonna provide the products and solutions to serve those communities. So yes, it's absolutely been underrepresented. And I think we've seen over the last couple of years, a very much a different trend to how that market's being addressed uh, from an underrepresented standpoint. Yeah. So, 
Because there are, you know, I, I, so maybe, I mean, there's an encouraging point there that there's, that there, we're, are we on a sort of a wave of um, compounding that we've, a decade of, of schools working on this with our youth coming out of some of these programs, the HBCUs starting to have entrepreneur programs and incubators on their own campuses, you know, so you start to have, um, you know, more a volume effect and the confidence to, to go and start a company, a tech company, or, you know, and, you know, consumer product kinds of companies, because there's a whole nother thing when you have products that have to be manufactured and stuff like that that goes into the the financial metrics but so do do are you encouraged are you seeing enough kind of seeds getting planted that it's going to be a it might be 17% in another decade or 20% in another decade that are that are getting access to those funds I, I am encouraged because i think this wave that we're in now is definitely different all of the things you described there's more accelerators and incubators there's uh, level of outreach that I don't think existed even five years ago, uh, especially around coding and STEM programs. And so all those things, I think that momentum is certainly there. I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, through the, you know, events and circumstances and the things uh, happened in 2020, uh, in many ways has, have also increased this level of interest from, you know, many corporate entities and, and foundations. Yeah, and and now there are more even VCs that are spinning out and focus on early stage uh, capital deployment. So that's all very encouraging. However, at the same time, my concern is, and I think we're seeing some of this, is that there were, and I can't remember the number, uh, Karen, but I know the Washington posted an article recently around the amount of capital that was committed, sort of post George Floyd, and it was obviously in the billions, like many, many billions. But in terms of when you start to peel the layer back, a lot of those commitments were done in a form of loans in some cases, which means, and again, that's a, that's a capital tool. So nothing necessarily, hopefully they're low interest loans. Uh, some are in the form of grants. Grants are great because it doesn't dilute equity for some of those founders. But a lot of that capital, uh, quite frankly, was it was charity in some cases and not investment. And so my concern is that there, there's been a reaction, an emotional reaction. Again, not, I'm not taking anything away from a lot of the entities that pledge capital, but almost um, in a way of wanting to give it away for programs. And again, there's, there's so many segments of this. I'm just trying to keep it as simple within the time frame we have. There's social programs, justice programs absolutely need capital. But from our perspective at the Marathon Fund and, and many, colleagues and peers that I talk with is one of the biggest ways that you can impact, make a community impact and social impact is through entrepreneurship and job growth. Because if we get more capital in the hands of these amazingly talented founders, they're going to grow these companies and hire from the communities in which they come from, black, brown, and otherwise, that's going to create a, a tremendous opportunity to develop and create wealth, which economically is now going to provide more opportunity for the individuals that were employees of those companies. So it's a, it's an effect around to me and others, it's just, you know, it's from a pure market standpoint, an investment standpoint that this is how we, this is one of the ways, not the only way to solve this is to get more capital uh, behind these entrepreneurs. And you could do that by, not just pledging it, but also putting metrics out there. Where did you deploy the capital? Are you investing directly into Black entrepreneurs or Latinx entrepreneurs? If so, let's see those metrics. If you're investing in fund managers uh, like myself that come from, you know, that are underrepresented or diverse uh, fund manager, you know, are, you, are those capital commitments actually flowing to, to other firms uh, like the Marathon Fund that are going to be deploying that capital? So, Yes, I'm very much optimistic, but I, I, I think as we look at over the next couple of years, as we start to see like what capital actually deployed, uh, and again, having been a management consultant, I, I know that sometimes internally these other pressures start to come in, right? And we're experiencing, again, there's economic and market conditions 
around increased labor wages, right, are going up. We've got a supply chain issue. We've got inflation. And a reaction that I know from a lot of corporate entities, because they've got to manage shareholder expectations and balance sheets, that there's going to be a retraction of, well, wait a minute, what bucket of monies do we have that can fix these other things? And the yeah. monies that were pledged for the initiatives that, you know, around Black entrepreneurs, Latinx entrepreneurs, uh, women, I think there's going to be tremendous pressure for that money to come back or just never get deployed. And that's the part from a transparency and I think yeah. uh, standpoint that I like to see a, a lot of those big pledges, you know, public, you know, again, this is a solution. It's not I just talk about the problem is, hey, publish uh, where, where that capital went. And, then, and again, there are some entities that I think doing a, a good job of that um, and listen, like, hey, here's what we've made capital commitments to and here, here are who they are. You can go. Yeah. Well, it goes uh you know, th- so that's kind of moving into the underfunded side of this. And, you know, about the same period that you were talking about, I was, um, I had this, I had, you know, had my own epiphanies on some things during last summer uh, of 2020, you know, as a result of the spotlight being uh, shined on, particularly the wealth gap and understanding the launch of the middle class and, you know, all of, you know, the, the ownership of, of, you know, how real estate plays in the, in the, in the wealth creation, being able to own your home, things like that, that have had impacted the black community, you know, that, you know, when you amplify it decades and decades, you know, kind of where you are. And so it was at the time I was, um, you know, said, okay, here's, if you want to fix this financial America, then you have to do very similar to what we have done that, you know, there's government set asides, there's corporations sometimes, but they'll just do it because stock stockholders, you know, want them to, it's a good thing to say, we're committing to putting X number of, of products on our shelves that are owned by women and minorities you know, whatever it is, our product mix or how we spend our money that they kind of committed in and became sort of of a expectation that stockholders had that a good corporate citizen was doing that stuff. Right. So I could see where that, you know, if there are groups out there and I've seen some angel groups that have then allocated and focused on attracting because they just don't have within their portfolio, similar to me, I didn't, you know, I never matched metrics. I just looked at what was the business opportunity. And so if you're going to focus on that um, and to kind of the point that you had made that when there's sort of this knee jerk reaction, like, oh, we need to do this. We need to show we support the community, but they don't have the skill set, the processes, the programs to actually properly screen and you know as a venture fund like you say you you have an obligation to your stakeholders to produce a return so they start to be fearful that they can't put 25 percent of their portfolio into women and minority owned because they don't relate they don't know how to judge they don't know how maybe that they don't know and so recognizing a desire but lack of skill set says, let's fund somebody such as Marathon Fund and some of these ones that are committed to it and have the eye on it and know how to screen and know all this kind of stuff. So big corporate funds should definitely be looking at if they want to make a long-term impact that says that they're going to be committed to the success of which growing the wealth within these underrepresented by, you know, communities, which is what compassionate capitalism, you don't have to be the successful entrepreneur if you invest in the successful entrepreneur and that successful entrepreneur produces the jobs, produces the innovation in the marketplace or the new services and offerings that marketplace didn't have. And the ripple effect that we see out in Silicon Valley, that's, you know, 30, 40 years ahead of everywhere else, but you can grow your own community whether it's Atlanta or Savannah, wherever it is, by encouraging people to invest in in the businesses in that community, whoever they are. And as venture funds, 
you know, if you don't have that or corporate funds, ec- corporate equity funds, if you don't have the skill set to actually do it and commit to it long term, then partner up with a fund such as yours. So just so now that I've kind of done the, the infomercial for you. Have you found that 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 is a conversation that you're when you go out to some of these limited partners or these corporate f- folks that are doing grants and things like that? Are you finding them that they're really receptive to hearing about your fund and the processes and the, and your background? Are they, is it, are the doors opening up for you as a result? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and again, in some cases, I think, um, and again, it depends on who the potential LP is, right? So there's capital that's flowing from large foundations and university endowments and family offices, high net worth individuals. Uh, I think we find the high net worth individuals have a, little bit more heightened sense of understanding because they've probably been entrepreneurs or they were successful. You know, we're talking about some angels, but some high net worth individuals, I think, have a, a little bit greater understanding and appreciation. I think some of the corporate entities, some, you know, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's someone or maybe a team's part-time job, right? It's not, you know, so that's the balance. So they're trying to on one hand, they're trying to do their day job, but then they're also working in, um, you know, with some efforts to try and assess, you know, diverse managers to, to you know, to determine where that deployment of capital may go. Uh, I would just say we, we've seen a mix <laughs> bag of, of that thus far. Uh, I think some are doing it better than others. Uh, I'll, I'll yeah. leave it. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so kind of within that that uh, scope, um, I was wondering if the if the <laughs> if the if part of um, I get okay. So I'm <laughs> sorry. I just uh, so part of what I talk about in the book is if you don't have the, and as that kind of, you don't have the time to do the due diligence, to do the stuff, you're not part of an angel group, you're not part of this stuff, then you go find an angel fund to invest in and you can dibble and dabble on the side of that, or you can co-invest with it, but, you know, go find something that you can put your, and diversify. So if you're doing real estate and stocks, then you're diversifying into private equity or into um, startups and entrepreneurs because you're investing in a in a fund that is whether it's sustainable. You want to invest in ed tech. You want to invest in minority owned businesses. Whatever is in your wheelhouse or all of the above, you know, find something that you can go and put money in and know that you've diversified yourself and you're having a, an impact on the community that way. So. I would like, I, I hope that um, folks that are listening here, if you are a shareholder of a public company or uh, in the alumni of a university and you saw announcements and press releases back in 2020 that they were committing a certain this or that or they were going to do whatever, follow up on it. Find out now it, near the end of 2021, where are they? Did they deploy that capital? Yeah, they didn't, and and voice your opinion to them. You know, you as a shareholder, you have a vote. So, you know, make sure that you are, you know, uh, we saw it with, and this is a this is a, a, a something that you're passionate about that's important to you, and it should be important to you for all the economic reasons that we've talked about in the past. But there is also, you know, when people that if sustainable is their thing, right? They want the the uh, the environment is their thing. Well, it was the shareholders that require that got. And I'm going to forget who it was, but it was like some of the big oil companies to start to move off of, of fossil fuels and invest some of their R and D and invest in their capital into investing in green energies. It was the shareholders that caused that, and so and it had them put put green people on their boards, so you could have the direct same impact with the companies that your shareholders that you own their shares of or the alumni that you're organizations that you're a part of that they can take their funds that they put into all kinds of places where they put them into different kind of investment funds and direct some of it to these organizations such as Marathon Fund that's focused in this particular area. So there's my my call to action out there for all you listeners. 
So. Yeah, no, that's great. And just to further that, I mean, like for the very large public pension funds that represent teachers and firemen yeah. and policemen, I mean, these funds are managed by uh, a team or staff and consultants. You know, part of that capital, so that when you're when you retire, <laughs> you'll continue to uh, be the beneficiaries of your hard work during your career. If you're again teacher, fireman, policeman, for example, or uh, working in the public, um, uh, state government, for example, those pension funds are investing on your behalf, and there's always an allocation within those public pension funds for alternative investment uh, asset class. So that's private equity, hedge fund, venture capital. So every person that may not even be an angel investor, you, to your point, have an opportunity. So whether you're an alumni of a university or a shareholder in a company, you actually have some power and influence, but you got to do a little bit of the hard work to call and find out or email and find out, hey, what, um, you know, public pension fund, XYZ, firemen, police teachers, how much of our the allocation is going to diverse fund managers within an alternative asset class? Like that's an easy, so the more that that happens, it doesn't make a difference. And I think it will continue to listen. And there, and again, the reality, you know, it's kind of touched on earlier, there's still, even in, in the, you know, aftermath of many of the things uh, from a social and racial equity standpoint in 2020, I, I still think in, a little bit to your previous question, I think some of the consultants for some of these entities, there's still an unconscious bias that exists. I mean, there's some bias, but then there's, I still think there's an unconscious bias. And without that pressure and that transparency and visibility, I still think, and I think we found, not just us, I think others, some of the still normal traditional excuses that are given for why allocations are not going uh, to to diverse managers. So, so yes, to your point, there is an opportunity for alumni and shareholders to influence some of that decision-making and to demand for and expect a level of transparency around uh, capital allocation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I apologize. I did not give up your, um, your website when you first had talked about it. So it's, it's marathonfund.com. It's really straightforward. Marathon fun. Marathon fun. And you know, and, and the reason we 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 talked earlier about the marathon club because we we know it's not a sprint, it really is a marathon. And so in 2004, you know, to, to my partner to Wayne McKnight's credit, um, the fact that you know the, the concept and idea that this is a marathon and there's hundreds of years of challenges that have to be overcome, and it's not gonna be a sprint and you know, in, in recent years with um, the late great rapper Nipsey Hussle and things that he talked about with some of his music and influence about a marathon continuing. It's, it's interesting how, you know, in 2004, we came up with this name and, and then as part of the culture, it's something that's continued. So, uh, so yes, the Marathon Fund is our website and we're happy to chat with anyone, yeah. founders, entrepreneurs, or, or investors. Absolutely. So that's a wrap. as we start to wrap up, um, is there a contact form on this side? Are there an entrepreneur or an investor and they want to ha- ask you questions about the fund or how it works or it just whatever they could just go through the website to get in touch yeah, with you? On the website, make it you know, submit uh, to info at the Marathon Fund. Uh, if they want to submit their executive summary or uh, use this charts there, one or two pages executive summary is always the easiest way for us to to take a look and, and get an idea if it's a, a fit. Okay. Very good. Anything you'd like to add as we we start to close out here that I we haven't touched on? No, I, I would just say, you know, thanks again for, for reaching out. It was awesome meeting you as part of Startup Runway. And I think these type of platforms are, are needed and these conversations have to continue to happen. I think um, what I will also encourage, you know, sometimes Quick side note, I met a gentleman, I did early voting here in Virginia last week, and I uh, ran into an older white male gentleman, probably in his 80s, and we had this really interesting spirited debate around a number of subjects, which is probably a whole nother um, (laughs) uh, conversation. But my sense was because of the media, there's so much noise in the media and where people are consuming information 
that I think there's some fatigue in some cases, like, well, wait a minute, we've been dealing with this problem before. So I would just encourage people to take the time when you can. Uh, if there's individuals that may not be like-minded or in your same space, to try and engage them in a way to see a different point of view without the noise, because it's just a lot of uh, consumption of information that's happening uh, that I think is clouding real meaningful discussions to get into talking about solutions. So I would just, uh, again, for your viewers and listeners to, you know, there's a lot that's going on, I think, in our lives. Um, you know, it's still a pandemic we're fighting through, but if you take the time to engage, uh, and again, I don't care what side of any argument you're on, uh, to take a step back and, and try not to be over-influenced by some of the, I think, filters, uh, by some of the traditional news outlets, if you will. Yeah, right. The, the good old-fashioned conversation. Yes. So, yeah, we used to used to be able to do that. I actually had a situation this past weekend where uh, uh, in a private group on uh, Facebook, somebody commented about I had shared an event and they were like, oh, that's political. I thought we were going to do political in here. And I was like, well, not exactly. I said, but if you want a political, there's a candidate forum. Why don't you come out and hear all the candidates say what they're going to say and don't go on hearsay hear it for yourself and make your own decision on what you're going to do. And let's not let some of the sensationalism of media influence all of our perspectives on things. Right. Absolutely. So, okay. Thank you so very much, Vernon, for being on the show. I really enjoyed hearing your perspectives on the marketplace and uh, the, the underrepresented and underfunded of the minority black Latin X, Latinx, women, disabled veterans, and LGBTQ, and uh, really uh, excited that you were able to be on the show. And we were able to put this together, and looking forward to people hearing about this and giving us feedback. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Give your comments. Share this. Take the action, and. We will uh, see you on the next side, onwards and upwards. Please go to karenrands.co and marathonfund.com. Thank you very much.